G'day, I'm Dr. Carl from Shirtloads of Science. Now, in this podcast, we look at one of the prime foundations of modern science, the randomised trial. Notice the word random. Now, people have died doing them, but many, many, many more lives have been saved as a result. Randomised trials are said to be the gold standard of scientific research, and yet they don't appear as often as they should. This podcast is a recording of a book launch at Glebe Books at, obviously enough, Glebe in Sydney. Our guest is Andrew Lee, who has written a book, Randomisters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. Welcome, Professor Lee. Well, first of all, thanks, uh, Carl. It is a, a true honour to be on stage with one of Australia's great public intellectuals. Randomisters, as a word, uh, first used in a pejorative sense by now Nobel laureate Angus Deaton, who is thinking of randomisters as being something like sandinistas, I think, people who took their weapon to all sorts of problems, perhaps where it wasn't warranted. But I've turned it into a positive because I think the randomisters are, in general, a force for opening our eyes to lots of interesting things going on the world. Uh, and the subtitle emerges out of a randomised trial. I explored various subtitles with my publisher. One of them was Randomisters, How a Powerful Tool Changed Our World. This one is Randomisters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. As a result of a short and cheap randomised trial running Google Ads with the various subtitles, this one completely beat out all of the others. So you're reading a book about randomised trials with a subtitle that has itself been randomly trialled. So how did randomised trials help Nelson win at Trafalgar? The Battle of Trafalgar sees Nelson face off against a much larger fleet of Spanish and French ships. And it's generally thought that uh, Nelson's victory has to do with uh, tactics, in particular turning the fleet sideways and going straight through rather than the standard broadside attack. But one of the little-known facts about it is that the Spanish and French ships were at that stage still ravaged by scurvy. Yet the Brits were giving their crew lemon juice on a daily basis, and so they were fighting fit. Uh, one of the reasons that the Brits had cracked the secret to scurvy was a randomised trial conducted by the young naval surgeon James Lind in 1747, uh, in which he took a dozen men suffering from scurvy uh, and gave them a variety of cures that had been proposed in the day. Some got salt water, some got a form of acid. Sulfuric uh, acid? My God. There were some pretty bizarre and barbaric cures, but the pair who got lemons and oranges were back on duty within a week, and within half a century, the British Navy cracked the secret of scurvy and was ready to win the Battle of Trafalgar. Okay, now just give me the numbers for the Seven Years' War of how many people the British had in the Navy, 180,000 or something? In the vicinity of 180,000 deaths from scurvy uh, and a couple of thousand deaths from battle wounds. So your chance of actually dying from a bit of cannon going through you are very, very small. Uh, your chance of dying because you, your body didn't have enough fresh fruit and vegetables uh, are very large. And scurvy is such a horrendous disease. One of the stories I came across when I was researching it was the tale of old sailors who, as their connective tissues began to come apart, uh, would discover old battle wounds opening up. Um, the, 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 the gums would become so painful that it was impossible to eat. Sometimes scurvy-ravaged ships uh, were so poorly manned that they crashed onto the rocks 
and the surviving sailors were too weak from scurvy to be able to swim ashore and save themselves. Uh, and yet, thanks to this one simple randomised trial, uh, scurvy is banished and sailing becomes much safer. Indeed, if it had been the Portuguese or the Spanish or the French who'd managed to do the randomised trial of scurvy first, that might be the language we were speaking tonight. Ah, now, speaking of what-if doors and so forth, tell us about sham surgery. Ah, so this is a fun one, and it's an area where Australian researchers are among the world leaders. So in a sham surgery trial, you consent to the following. Either you will be part of the true surgery, in which case you'll be cut open, the operation will be performed, and you'll be sewn back up again. Or you'll be part of sham surgery, in which you'll be cut open, the same easy listening music will be played, There's the operation will go for the same duration, they might even sort of fiddle around a bit so you feel like the, so the operation is going on, and then you'll be sewn up again without the operation being performed. How many people feel like they would consent to be in a sham surgery trial? <laughs> One of the fascinating things for me was chatting to the Melbourne doctor, Peter Chung, about this. And, uh, and I said, who'd sign up for this? And Peter said, well, you'll be surprised at what people sign up to when a surgeon suggests it. He says, I say to them, you can choose not to be in the trial if you like, and we can do the surgery or not do the surgery. But the fact is, we don't really know whether or not the surgery works. And so we have what they call clinical equipoise. We think that you are equally likely to do well from getting the surgery or not doing, you're not getting the surgery. We think, but we're not sure yet. Exactly, exactly. Were they sure, it would clearly be unethical to conduct this randomised trial. But because they're not sure, some argue it is unethical not to get better evidence as to what works. One of the most radical pieces of research in sham surgery concerns a meniscectomy, uh, an operation to repair a torn meniscus in the knee conducted on middle-aged patients. It's a very common operation, one of the most common orthopaedic operations, and a randomised trial in 2013 in Finland found no detectable difference between patients who got the surgery and patients who didn't. And, and what uh, year was that? That's 2013. Now... Not everyone was happy about this. Uh, there's a journal called Arthroscopy that editorialised in the following terms. They said, because no mentally healthy patient would consent to sham surgery, this is a study which by definition is being done on mentally unhealthy individuals. And so therefore the results cannot be generalised to mentally healthy patients. But sham surgery is shaking things up. Hang on. Does that imply... That people who have mental problems, disorders, etc., have genetically different knee joints. You've you've hit the nail on the head there. The logic of the editors is somewhat questionable, even under their own terms. But this is prompting a rethink. And one of the factors that goes on here is the so-called placebo effect is massive in surgery. The placebo effect is the notion that if you think you're getting a treatment, then that makes you better in itself. Uh, but we know that while there's some placebo effect from getting a pill, there's a bigger placebo effect from getting an injection, and there's a bigger placebo effect still from getting surgery. Indeed, half the patients who think they've had surgery, sham or real, feel better. 
But in three quarters of the cases, it's not clear that the sham surgery is doing any worse than the real surgery. So this is a really important area, particularly as we think as a community about how we allocate health resources. Uh, we need to know whether or not these operations are, are working, uh, if only because the operations are in some cases causing infections. So you can be made worse off by being in, uh, in hospital. My own father's shoulder surgery ended him uh, being discharged with pneumonia and taking weeks to recover. And so surgery isn't costless. And we need to learn more about it. This is Shirtloads of Science, the podcast. Our guest is Andrew Lee, who has written a book, Randomisters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. What about in that other thing that affects us all in a civilised society, education? And I love this bit in his book, Sesame Street. So Sesame Street is an amazing creation which brings together creative types and educationalists. It is deeply grounded in educational methodology to an extent which I had no idea about until I started researching it. The Sesame Street creators rigorously trialled pilot episodes to see what would work. So, for example, you remember the letter of the day and the number of the day? Uh, well, Sesame Street tried the idea of having two letters of the day and two numbers of the day. It's got a reasonable logic about it. You can get through the alphabet, the numbers twice as fast. And so they just did random testing and then uh, looked to see how well children who watched the episodes had learned. And it turned out that it's a lousy idea to try and teach kids two letters or two numbers. They learn far better if you teach one letter or one number at a time. In learning body parts, Sesame Street randomly trialled whether it was better to learn about body parts from a Muppet, I think it's Grover that they were, they were working on, or from a picture. They were pointing out body parts on the Mona Lisa. And it turned out learning body parts from a Muppet is far more effective a way of teaching. Uh, they tried episodes about controversial issues. In one, there was a, a death. Uh, Mr Hooper, the storekeeper, was to die and they were worried that that might be too much for the kids. But uh, when they randomly trialled it, the group who had watched the show felt that it was, it was understandable. They didn't, they didn't seem to be in sort of any sort of trauma afterwards. And then they trialled an episode on parental divorce because, you know, it's a significant issue of the time. And there they found significant problems. Children in particular were unable to discern divorce from parents fighting and many of the kids who'd randomly been selected to watch the pilot divorce episode thought that any time parents argued that meant they were going to divorce. Sesame Street never put a divorce episode to air but they put a death episode to air as a result of randomly trialling these things, testing their presuppositions. Uh, now in education, you've got the uh, uh, Education Endowment Foundation in Britain randomly trialling a a whole host of interventions in school, uh, a philosophy-based intervention, a Singaporean way of teaching maths, particular computer devices for reading recovery. Uh, all of them have different costs associated to them and so they're able not only to say what works and what doesn't, you know, what gets a tick, what gets a cross, but they can look at what's cost-effective. Turns out that the philosophy-based intervention is about 30 times as cost-effective as the Singaporean-designed maths program. Uh, so you're able to uh, stretch your education dollar further to get the biggest gains in student learning at the, in the most economical way uh, and really step away from the ideological wars towards a much more practical question, what works? So you're saying that in these educational studies... 
rather than just going by their prejudices, what they've taught, what they believe. They actually do randomised studies on different kids in Group A and Group B and matching them for gender and socioeconomic state. In other words, that's a fancy term for poor or wealthy. They do that sort of stuff. Well, so the great thing about a randomised trial is that if you have a sufficiently large sample, you don't need to balance. So if we took everybody in the room, we've got everyone to toss a coin, about half the room would be heads, about half the room would be tails. We would expect similar numbers of men and women in the heads and tails group. Uh, a similar number of heads and tails would have had a beer or would have had a wine tonight. Similar number of heads or tails people would be atheists or believers. If we then asked the heads group to get an extra hour of sleep tonight and we went back and measured how happy everybody was tomorrow, uh, if we saw that the heads group were happier than the tails group, we could reasonably conclude that our intervention, an extra hour of sleep, was causing the, the increase in happiness. Now, you can do some fancy things of balancing beforehand in order to get a little bit more precision when you've got a small sample, but with a sufficiently large sample, just the toss of a coin is enough in order to allow you to separate correlation from causation, uh, which is why the medical researchers these days basically don't let you put a new drug in the pharmaceutical benefits register without a randomised trial. So what sort of randomised trials are being conducted in Australia in education at the moment? There was a recent trial of Abracadabra in the Northern Territory, which was a Canadian-based literacy program. The importance of being scientific and critical when you're dealing with a, a challenge as significant as closing the Indigenous-non-Indigenous gap on reading ability is vital. Uh, in fact, the more deep disadvantage we have, I think the more we need to bring our scientific and critical resources to bear so we don't simply have things run by what feels good in our gut, but we actually have things done based on what actually works. Speaking of education, how effective is education in keeping people out of jail, improving their income, improving family coherence with regard to randomised trials? So education is extraordinarily powerful and different types of education seem to matter. There's sort of standard book learning and here we are in a bookstore so we're all kind of pretty committed to that, uh, that, that book learning. But then there's also behaviour regulation. So there's a Chicago program called Becoming a Man and Becoming a Man is designed for inner city youths who need in different contexts to work out when to fight and when to comply. If you're living a comfortable middle-class life, the answer is anytime anyone asks you something, you should basically politely comply and, and that'll, that'll get you on just fine. But if you're living in a tough suburb in Chicago, then compliance can often be a really bad strategy. If you're walking home and someone says, give me your phone, and you comply, then chances are next day they'll take your shoes and your bag and your wallet. Sometimes on the street, you've got to fight. But when your teacher says, give me your phone, then you need to comply. Becoming a man is grounded in cognitive behavioural therapy, teaching youths to slow down and to work out when is appropriate to comply and when is appropriate to fight. It looked quite effective in the sort of early pilot studies, but it was only when it was properly put to a rigorous randomised trial uh, that researchers were able to see that it was a powerful anti-crime strategy, a form of education which focused very much on, on soft skills and on getting those, those interpersonal skills right in a way that was deeply sensitive to the environment in which the youths were living. And what happened 
further down the line with regard to jail, income and the family that the uh, participants of the program had, what sort of family, broken family altogether? So it seems to have a, a strong effect on, on reducing incarceration and indeed uh, this is an effect that you see in, in some of the early childhood studies as well. One of the most famous studies is the Perry Preschool Study, which provides high-quality early childhood education for a couple of years before children enter school. Perry Preschool produced some boosts in IQ, some improvements in, uh, in health, but over the long run, its biggest effects were in reducing incarceration. This was a, a subject group where, in the control population, half had gone to jail before their 30th birthday. And so a high-quality early childhood program was able to significantly reduce incarceration uh, and have a huge impact, not just for those youths, but for the, for the community. Uh, the cost of crime to the community is massive, uh, not just because things are taken and people are hurt, but because it creates an atmosphere of fear in which people feel less comfortable, for example, walking down George Street at night. So the crime reduction benefits of, uh, of something like Perry Preschool are massive, uh, and that's prompting a whole spate of randomised trials and early childhood programs, including a terrific one in West Heidelberg in Melbourne at the moment, Australia's first ever randomised trial of an early childhood program. In recent times, a Nobel Memorial Prize has been given to somebody for that five-letter word, nudge. And you talk about it in your book, your fabulous book, which you should all buy. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about nudge? Danny Kahneman was the first psychologist to win the Nobel Prize and he did it by showing that a range of behavioural insights, ideas from psychology, could usefully be brought into economics. And much of these behavioural insights have been carefully tested using rigorous randomised trials. The British government set up a nudge unit which was looking at questions like how can we get people to pay their fines more readily? They had a, a very boring notice which was sent out which explained to people if they didn't pay their fine then their car would be deregistered. And so they just tried a very simple trick. They included a picture of your car and in big letters on the top, pay the fine or lose your car. Repayment rates go up significantly. That's good for those people because no one wanted them to lose their car, but it's also good for the taxpayer. Small experiment, very low cost. The letters cost basically the same amount, but millions of pounds of additional revenue by bringing these behavioural insights to bear on public policy. The New South Wales government has set up its own behavioural insights team, which is doing similar tweaks on getting uh, people to not only pay their fines, but also show up for doctor's appointments. And they've found that personalised text messages are sent a day before, which explained to the patient, if they don't show up, then it's going to cost the hospital money, increase the share of people who show up for their appointment the next day. Uh, it helps too to have the person's name in the text message. Again, maybe not something that we would have thought was obvious beforehand, uh, but we only know when we, when we rigorously test it through a randomised trial. Now, can you tell us about randomised trials and wait for it? The New South Wales Drug Court. Ah, so this comes out of the episode in the 1990s when Australia is 
pretty much topping the world for our rate of heroin addiction. We had a heroin problem, which was off the charts, frankly. Then Premier Bob Carr had lost his brother to a drug overdose, but there was pretty powerful forces, particularly in talkback radio in this city, uh, who were arguing against any approach which could, could be seen as soft on drug users. Among the harm reduction community, there was an idea that perhaps you might be able to have a drug court. You might be able to have a different pathway in which somebody who was addicted to drugs and had committed an offence was, rather than simply being locked up in jail, put through a treatment program in which they dealt with their addiction, uh, with the backstop being that if they didn't show up to treatment, they would be thrown in the clink. And so they ran a a randomised trial. People who had committed uh, drug offences or were accused of drug offences were randomly sent to either the traditional criminal justice process or else to the drug court. Uh, Then they followed them up uh, a year later to see what crimes they'd committed. And here's the thing. You didn't have to care about drug users to like the drug court. Even if you placed no value on drug users, no value on those going through the drug court, it was still a good deal for the community because its crime reduction benefits were far bigger than its overall cost. By the way, it was also good for the drug users themselves, and I certainly place significant social value on on, on who were more likely to have tackled their drug addiction problems, less likely to find themselves back in jail as a result. Uh, Drug courts have now proliferated across Australia, and people around the world look to the New South Wales drug court trial as rigorous, randomised evidence uh, for a clever way of dealing with drug addiction. Oh, that makes me feel so happy that we've done something wonderful in New South Wales. (laughs) Pioneers. This is Shirtloads of Science, the podcast. Our guest is Andrew Lee, who has written a book, Randomisters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. Okay, let's just change a little bit now. Randomised trials, India, where open defecation is such a common thing. In other words, you do not defecate into a toilet where you have a sewage system, but rather in an open field. Well, open defecation is a huge source of disease and, and hence uh, death, for, particularly for children. The, the risk of open defecation, and of course, is that those E. coli bacteria make their way into the water supply and then into the, uh, the systems of, uh, of vulnerable kids, causing, uh, causing disease or, at worst, death. Uh, but to tackle open defecation requires two things. Uh, you need toilets and you need people to use those toilets. And it was only through randomised trials that researchers came to understand uh, the importance of putting those two things together. Uh, one of the interventions, uh, funded through in part through your tax dollars, uh, is in Indonesia, uh, where in local villages uh, a randomised trial tested either just the provision of toilets or education programs, or both. Uh, The education programs involved the entire community. They did what was called a walk of shame, in which the community would walk around and and identify all the places in the community where people went to uh, do poo. It's lots of of sort of sniggering. Uh, And then they talked about how the faeces would make its way from that spot into the water supply. And through that straightforward education program, plus the supply of toilets, they were able to get a big reduction. 
education. But either the supply of toilets uh, or the education program in itself was in most cases not sufficient. This is an interesting finding, though, because it comes to the issue of generalisability. There's certain communities where that walk of shame seems to have backfired, where the notion of an outsider coming in and, and getting the community to uh, see where defecation is, is happening um, causes more offence than understanding, and these defective on behavioural change. So we do need to be sensitive to the notion that one size doesn't invariably fit all and that the randomised trials are teaching us something which works in a particular context and is likely to work in other contexts. Things may differ because the world is a complex place. Okay, now give us, give us another example out of your fabulous book, Africa, AIDS, condoms and Pope Benedict XVI. <laughs> The approach that the Vatican has traditionally taken towards sex education is summed up in abstinence. Basically, hold off until you're married. Uh, and in uh, in one country, I'm trying to... I think it was Nigeria, it was a nine-chill campaign. Hold up, don't do anything until you're married. Uh, it turns out that approach is profoundly unsuccessful in either preventing pregnancy or preventing the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Randomisters were able to evaluate randomly some of these abstinence programs Programs which uh, not only don't work in Africa but also don't seem to work in American high schools. Uh, their effect on sexually transmitted diseases in American high schools uh, is to increase the spread of sexually transmitted diseases because a teen who has signed a virginity pledge is less likely to have in their wallet next to the virginity pledge bit of paper a condom. So when things get, uh, get a little hot, they're more likely to engage in unprotected sex. Uh, one of the things that really worked in, uh, in the African development studies and tackling HIV, though, was education around HIV prevalence according to age, uh, teaching young girls in particular uh, that while a so-called sugar daddy might have a lot of money, they also had a much higher propensity to be HIV positive. So teaching young girls that HIV prevalence is much lower among the boys of their age had a substantial impact on their sexual behaviour uh, and therefore reduced the spread of HIV. I saw a bit of that myself when spent a few years going to America talking to schools and universities in a few states. And on one hand, they did have the virginity abstinence program. And on the other hand, in every school I went to for the first time in my life, I was giving talks to young girls, I say girls, who were pregnant, 16 and younger, and who had been involved in the abstinence program. And it seemed to me that you didn't really need a randomised trial to pretty well see what was going on there. But on a lighter note, tell me about casinos, randomised trials, Las Vegas and hurrah. So Haraz Casino is managed by a former economics professor who says oh, that... Uh, Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> managed by a former uh, economics professor whose motto is that you can get fired for Haraz for three things, for stealing, for harassing women and for not having a control group. <laughs> and I, I like this guy already. Haraz has experimented with randomised trials on a whole host of things. They experiment on uh, encourage, encourage people to buy more food in order to encourage people to stay on the machines, in order to encourage staff to stay in the, uh, in the establishment. Now, when we're talking about casinos, you immediately worry about problem gambling and, and they do assure researchers that they don't target problem gamblers. Take that assurance as you will. 
But they're just one of thousands of businesses around the world that are incorporating randomised trials into how they do their business. Netflix is built on randomised trials. Intuit is using randomised trials. Humana, Chrysler, United Airlines. Who's got a flybys card in the room? few of you, you're part of a randomised trial. One in a hundred flybyers cards uh, is uh, is part of a control group which doesn't receive any marketing. Cole's uh, management uh, looking after the program told me they could easily tell who was in the randomised trial and who wasn't. And they said, you just look at the last two digits and that will tell them. Oh. I said, oh, that's great. What are the last two digits that make up the control group? I'm not going to tell you. And I said, sorry, <laughs> we're not going to tell you that. So, so uh, do you reckon it would be just like a number like 13 or 42? or Precisely. So they would be able to look at your card and say it's number 13, they'd say, right, you're part of the control group. That means that they're not sending their promotional materials to one in 100 customers. Why do they do that? Why do they forego the chance to advertise to one in 100 customers? Because by having a control group, the Coles board are confident that they actually know causally what the effect of their marketing campaigns is. It's baked into the process. Google has randomly trialled a whole host of aspects of its search bar, and indeed the shade of blue of the Google search bar was selected in a randomised trial in which they tried 40 different shades of blue uh, and picked the one that had biggest take-up. Uh, sounds like a small thing, but they actually estimate that that added millions of dollars to their bottom line. Uh, Netflix has improved its uh, its algorithm as to what movie to serve you up next based on randomised trials. So the randomised trials are all around you and frankly, you've probably participated in randomised trials today in at least one different context. Uh, if you walk into a store these days, you will find that half of all its posted prices end in the number nine. Uh, that's thanks to, to a whole series of randomised trials uh, that have randomly varied prices and looked at demand. And here's something that comes out of behavioural economics. Demand sometimes goes up when the price is increased to a number ending in nine. In one study, demand was higher for a product sold for $39 than for $34. An insight which would not have been supplied by standard economics, but which emerged out of randomised trials literature. Can you give a big hand for Andrew Lee, the author of Randomista? Third Loads of Science is washed, spun and aired by the University of Sydney.